ideas. So change your dial to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It will change your life. show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David and my guest today, Heidi Julovitz, is the author of three novels, First the Mineral Palace, Then the Effects of Living Backwards, and currently we'll be talking about her newest book, The Uses of Enchantment. She's also the editor and one of the founders of the magazine The Believer. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you here. (laughs) I understand you're on a wacky little tour around the country. Yeah, uh, I was informed yesterday I was in Madison and then I came to Ann Arbor and today I'm actually going to um, Iowa City and uh, my friend in Madison said only a New Yorker would be doing that itinerary. I guess I'm going east and then west and then east again. Naturally. The zigzag. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you can't drive, you can't navigate. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, we always start the show off with a little mm-hmm. bit from the book. So I wonder Great. if you would read for us. And I'm going to actually ask you to read from the, um, I've got two passages here, but this is the, the, the second of the two later on. Great. And if you'll sort of set us up, um, this no give us a little intro to the book and then um, launch right in whenever you're ready. Well, this section is um, from the... Uh, notes of a therapist that the main character is seeing. Essentially, the main character has uh, disappeared for a few weeks, and she reappears, and no one can really figure out. She presumably can't remember what happened to her, so she's been sent to this therapist uh, to try to figure out what happened in that blank period while she was gone, um, and if indeed she was abducted or what exactly happened to her. Um, And uh, as you read these therapist sections, which are one of three different sections in the book, you slowly see that she is um, manipulating him quite severely and in fact she is using as her kind of guidebook Freud's Dora um, case of hysteria she's basically cribbing from that entirely so in this section there are a few references to that he touched you I said sort of she said he made you touch him I said he kissed me and hugged me and I could feel his His erection, I said. I wrote in my notes, K equals Kurt. Mary nodded. I imagine you felt very betrayed, I said. Mary shrugged, whatever, she said. It was just Kurt. Mary coughed. But still, I said. Mary was seized by a coughing fit. She waved her hands in front of her face apologetically. I fetched a cup of water from the waiting room bubbler. Mary drank the contents gulpingly. Thanks, she said. There's a weird pressure on my thorax. Every time I think of his eno pressing into my stomach, I feel pressure on my thorax. Calls a shat a shat, I wrote in my notes, but not a penis. That's called displacement symptom formation, I said. Mary coughed. It's a common response to unwanted stimulus, I said. Yeah, well, she said, you probably think I liked it. I think you should tell me how it made you feel. It made me feel tired, she said. I was reminded of a remark Mary made during our first session when she claimed that the moaning sounds, which sounded like group sex, had made her feel sleepy. 
You frequently respond to unwanted sexual stimulus with fatigue, I said. It's almost postcoital, she said. Excuse me? I read that a decent number of convicted rapists are caught because they're so relaxed afterward they forget they've committed a crime. But you're the raped girl in this equation, not the rapist. That's a very victim-oriented approach, Beaton, she said. Why don't you tell me what the raped girl feels like, I said. Her feelings do not matter, Mary said. Why is that? Because the raped girl is a liar, Mary said. Is that a bad thing to say? Good and bad aren't words we value here, I said. Who says the raped girl is a liar? Everyone says, Mary says. Everyone includes you, I said. Mary didn't answer. If she's a liar, I said, why did she lie? She lied, Mary said, because the truth is so clearly unbelievable. Thank you. That's Heidi Julovitz reading from The Uses of Enchantment, her newest novel, just out. Yeah, as of last week, in fact. Wow, Not even yet a week old. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so exciting. I, I never know exactly when the date is because I get the pre-copy. Right. Exactly, so, exactly, yeah. yes. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about liars and victims mm-hmm. because um, we have sort of uh, different cultural moments. And this book takes place in the 80s or yes. the 90s. yes. It actually takes place in the 80s, 80s okay. yes. which was a, a cultural moment when um, many people were talking about how they were abused mm-hmm. and um, folks were coming forward and therapists were saying, you were abused and exactly. all kinds of stuff. Um, this is a case of a young woman who seems to be in control of the situation in ways that we don't normally think about mm-hmm. that moment of um, particularly female sexuality in our history in the U.S. Yeah, and I guess seems would be the operative word, seems to be in control. Um, you know, thinking about this book and, and doing the research that I did, I, I kind of dabbled both in um, sort of more uh, stately psychoanalytic and psychotherapeutic um, texts and then also uh, looked at the the sort of pop psychology books that were very popular. And, and what's interesting is to sort of... Um, uh, to place the 80s in a, in a context that we can now supply because we're past it. But before the 80s, which is when um, the recovered memory boom occurred, and also what's happening at that time is we have uh, this sense as well that um, everybody is kind of in danger. There were the daycare centers where the children were suddenly claiming that they had been um, victims of a satanic cult. And um, all this stuff is sort of erupting at the same time. Um, what kind of provided the setup for that situation, um, in my opinion, is uh, a book called Sybil, which I think a lot of people have read. Um, And this was a book uh, which was about a woman whose name had been changed. Her name was not actually Sybil, but it was a case study. Again, another case study like the Dora case study. And uh, she was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. And so this uh, recovered memory chic of the 80s seemed to almost be uh, a kind of less nutty, more kind of mainstream way to experience multiple personality disorder. And it was very, very victim oriented. I mean, as was multiple personality disorder, you know, presumably it was caused by an abuse episode that you had so um, uh, sublimated that it made you break off into 16 different people. (laughs) 
<laughs> Whereas now, actually, what they what they had um, discovered is that you uh, you were a victim of abuse and then you just um, sublimated it so much that you forgot about it. But still, it was almost it was a kind of variation on multiple personality because you were who you were, but you had another person inside of you who was actually not allowed to come out. Um, and uh, and so then subs and it was very obviously both are very kind of victim oriented and victim enabling approaches. And as with everything, um, there were a lot of people who um, were able to tell a story that they had never been able to tell before. But a lot of people started to tell stories that really were just stories. And um, as with all these sort of developments, I guess you find yourself kind of no closer to the truth in the end. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, then that, that sort of quest for the truth, or the mm-hmm. trying, trying to figure out the truth, is, is an interesting question to me in thinking about this book now, about that time. Because the 80s was also a big, great time of denial. It was when yeah. AIDS appeared, and we're like, AIDS, mm-hmm. what's AIDS? And yeah. um, it's like, abuse, what's abuse? And... Um, Oh yeah, I remember it now. I mean, like there, there were very, there were lots of things going on in the '80s where folks were um, both denying that they knew things and claiming they knew things that maybe they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then this is a very different period again, where there's all kinds of denial going on. Um, yeah. What made you think back to that particular period and say, "Well, this is what I want to write a book about at this time"? Is there any connection? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in a way, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know. Um, if this is really the case, but as I started to write it, you know, I almost feel like I've never really written anything that to me feels very autobiographical. Um, I've never really written about New England, which is where I grew up. And I don't know, I almost feel like there's this like time release um, capsule that writers have in their brains. I feel like I have a couple of friends who had written tons of books, none of which had anything to do with um, themselves or their childhood. And then suddenly in kind of their mid to late 30s, this this childhood comes back to haunt you and suddenly you want to revisit that period. And also I was able to kind of revisit it with um, a sort of accuracy and a vividness that I don't think I could have earlier. It just wasn't really available to me. Um, So I, but also, you know, talking about the sort of denial versus um, confrontation tension, that's very much what the 80s in New England in particular felt like to me, because you are, it is um, a culture that's not really, um, it's not really set up to embrace therapy, for one thing, um, certainly not set up to embrace uh, sudden declarations of abuse, you know, um, sublimated or otherwise. Right. <laughs> um, the real or the faked kind. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so there is this uh, tension that, um, that I wanted to kind of explore between a, a kind of a culture that is really based on repression. I mean, it gets it, uh, its identity from repression. <laughs> And um, and how a culture like that would respond to um, the sort of greater cultural eruption of, hey, you know, you were abused. I was abused. We were all abused. Let's talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was up there then and I just it was a very strange moment. Yeah. Yeah. And and although I'm not from New England, I did go to high school in Massachusetts. And so it was it was just sort of a a strange moment Mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to be be there. Um, well, 
when I, I must admit, when I when I read the premise, what the premise was for the book in the press mm-hmm. kit, I was like, oh my goodness, how is she going to pull this off? Because it's so tricky. There's so many feelings associated with, um, like there is real abuse in the world, and mm-hmm. people really were abducted. You know, girls mm-hmm. were abducted mm-hmm. and were taken advantage of, and I mean, there's all kinds of of really real stuff. And when I put the book down after I'd finished it, I talked to a friend um, and I said, I can't believe that she, how she did that. And I, and I couldn't even articulate. I said, the only thing I could sort of come up with it off the top of my head was, well, maybe if a woman had written Lolita and fleshed out the female characters in the same way that the male characters were fleshed out and written with the same sort of non-judgmental objectivity-ish, then Mm -hmm. that would be how I would describe what happened to me as I was reading this book and trying to figure out how you did it. And and I'm wondering how you felt about writing it, because there there is this um, clarity that allows us to draw our own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no judgment that comes in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a very sticky issue. Yeah, they are very sticky issues. and it's funny because somebody at my reading last night brought up the Lolita question and it's so embarrassing to say, and again, you know, it's like the subconscious forces that work on you, which I guess when you're talking about a book that's about the subconscious or the fake subconscious here, you can, um, you know, relish the ironies all the more of your own subconscious while you were writing it. But um, I honestly did not think of Lolita at all, which it seems inconceivable <laughs> that I wouldn't have thought about it. Um, and and I think I'm, I'm very glad that it didn't occur to me that Lolita would be an obvious precursor to this because I think I would have just tossed the whole project aside because if you're at all aware that you're dabbling in the same territory as um, Nabokov, you probably should hang up your hat. It's <laughs> <laughs> a frightening precedent to try to follow. It is. But I, I mean, I guess I do feel like there, we had reached such a tipping point in terms of the victim narrative and um, and also you know there there was one particular editorial in the, in the New York Times that um, quite inspired me I think there's a writer named Katie Royfe who has written a number of nonfiction and fiction books and she's a she's a real um, uh, she likes to piss off the feminists basically and she's so far right, however, that she sometimes comes around the horn and she's left again. And this editorial she wrote about Monica Lewinsky was kind of one of those instances where she was essentially saying, why are we all assuming that Monica Lewinsky was a victim? I mean, why aren't we saying, hey, here was this girl who decided I have this power and I'm going to do the most powerful thing I can with it, which is I am going to seduce the president of the United States. And how cool is that? Um, And and she just was sort of asking us to kind of rethink this knee jerk victim uh, kind of format that we've sort of decided if there's a young girl and a man and they have anything sexual to do with each other, he victimized her. And I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. And it did seem as though after this moment in the 80s when everybody was sort of remembering their moments of abuse and these and these voices were kind of released that had been so long um, repressed, that then we suddenly had all these books. There were lots of novels and memoirs and everything was very victim oriented and it was especially with women it felt you know here's a woman and again she's been a victim of incest of sexual abuse of drug abuse of a bad relationship and i just thought enough you know i actually think that women have a little bit more of 
um, a say in what's happening to them. They're not total victims. I mean, the victim narrative is very enticing, and I think we all kind of um, relish that position as as sort of um, destructive and um, unself-respecting as that sounds, but I think it's part of a fantasy that we all have. However, I also think that it's a little more complicated than that. Well, that's a really great place to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Ashley David. My guest today, Heidi Julevitz, is the author of The Uses of Enchantment. We'll be right back. If you want me, you can find me left of center off of the strip. In the outskirts and in the fringes, in the corner out of the grip. This is Ashley David talking to Heidi Julevitz on the Living Writers Show. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. And thanks for thanks for coming in, Heidi. This is actually a pre-recorded show, and it's very early in the morning mm-hmm. when we're pre-recording. <laughs> I'm having some really bad coffee right now. It's not helping me at all. <laughs> it's that coffee that makes you more tired. <laughs> more tired. Oh no. Um, well, in the in the we left the last segment talking about this enough enough with victims. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about adolescents and girls mm. and. The, the the other side of victimhood, how um, Jim Shepard was on the show mm-hmm. uh, about this time last year, actually, yeah. uh, the author of Project X. And we talked about adolescence and boys. And um, in his book, Project X, um, the boys who have felt victimized, the sort of dorky, nerdy boys, start shooting people. Um, and he talks about that as being a particularly um, male choice, um, not something that he thinks girls would do. And um, so I'm wondering, this is a book where it's like, okay, well, a a 17-year-old girl, you know, several hundred years ago would have been a a full grown-up, and now we have extended adolescence. And um, the character in your novel is sort of taking charge, uh, I'll use the word seemingly again, Mm -hmm. of her life a little bit. Um, And um, you explore this issue of sexuality and how where the power lies is it with the the men or the women or the age difference what's going on what do you what's what's going on <laughs> with girls yeah. and adolescents and sexuality yeah i mean I, I think it's just a really and again i mean i i think it's important to um remember that this is a uh um an exploration of a certain girl's sort of adolescent awakening, or not even adolescent, I guess. What are you when you're 16 or 17? You're, are you an adolescent then? I don't know. Well, I think now we're adolescents <laughs> until we're about 40. It's true. It's amazing. <laughs> Everyone keeps talking to me about, I had a radio interview the other day, and I said, well, I mean, you're such a young writer, and what you've done, and I was like, dude, I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be a young writer until, and then suddenly I'm going to be 65, you know? Right. And, then, and then what are you, an old writer? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just sort of skip. I mean, maybe that's the way to go. You just get to be an adolescent and then you get to get Social Security. I don't know. Um, but, uh, 
anyways, yeah, so the fact that this is set during the 80s, I think, is is, is important because, um, you know, that was a very specific time period where, um, again, and it's set in New England. So I feel as though this woman's um, sort of exploration of her power is is very circumscribed by the time period and also by the geography. So it, it thus sort of... Um, you know, the, her seeming control is continually um, challenged and overturned, I guess, by her relationship with her mother, by her own complicated relationship with her sexuality, um, which is where, for example, um, the witches come in. Right. <laughs> this, this sort of takes place in Salem. Yes, it takes imagined place in a, real. an imagined, um, you know, this is the trick about writing books that you want to, you want to sort of... Um, take advantage of the of the uh of the cultural residue of a place but you don't actually want to set it in that place because then you have to deal with what streets are actually in Salem and I mean I'm embarrassed to say I've actually never been to Salem ever so even though I grew up in Maine and anyways it's it's um it's uh there are a couple borders in there (laughs) yeah um anyway so um so and I and um I feel like writing my first book too I actually set my book in an actual city and you know, I would go to readings and people would say, well, you know, that street actually does not intersect with that street. And, you know, so you, you I wanted to have a, a place that would be sort of afforded some fictional immunity, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I studied in West Salem instead of Salem. So I was hopefully getting the both of both world, best of both worlds. But um, so, yeah, so the witch, I also feel the kind of um, the the witch, uh, the, histo- the history of witches and what happened to witches that sort of permeates that area. You know, in other words, it was these, some reads that it was, you know, these sort of sexually um, promiscuous women who were called witches and hung. And so there is that um, that kind of historical uh, resonance, I guess, hanging over this woman's, um, sort of adolescent blossoming and her attempts to bewitch other men. Well, and you you set the book. I wonder if you'll read another little bit from the book because you've set mm-hmm. it um, partly in a girls' school in, a, in an academy. So it's yes. not only New England. It's not only the 80s. It's not only Salem mm-hmm. or the yes. fictional version of Salem. It's also a very prestigious, prim girls' school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this takes place actually in um, this prim girls school and the um it is no accident that the headmaster's name is miss pym (laughs) um anyway so this is where uh mary has come back to the school and um she's of course one of the school's most notorious uh graduates infamous graduates i should say and uh miss pym is no fan of hers but she does not think that miss pym actually recognizes her now all these years later and oh, she's come to find her old, uh, an old therapist who now still works at the school. Your friends with Dr. Beetleman, said Miss Pym, holding open the stairway door once they reached the second floor. Professional acquaintances, Mary said. Dr. Beetleman has proven a marvelous addition to the faculty. We've had no troubles with the students in years. I don't know how she does it. Pills, Mary offered. Miss Pym paused on the landing. At Semring, we believe that each girl has been given the tools by which to overcome her own obstacles. It merely takes a dedicated person to teach her how to best outwit her own worst tendencies. This is our pedagogical as well as our psychological approach, one that most parents subscribe to. Last year, we had the highest application rate of any preparatory school in the greater Boston area. 
Impressive, said Mary, wondering if Miss Pym had forgotten that she denied being a prospective parent. I'm not ashamed to boast, especially since it took nearly a decade to regain our status as the area's top school. Scandal does nothing for the admissions numbers, especially when, while we had the reputation for producing disturbed mendicants. Mary was reminded of the so-called vagranthood broken into the Greens' mausoleum. Miss Pym had spent her life eradicating mendicants and vagrants, and yet when faced with a person accused of being both, Miss Pym was touchingly blind to this fact. Disturbed mendicants, said Mary lightly, in a school like this. Miss Pym's face condensed into a wry smile. The school is hardly to blame, it's the mothers. If I had my way, Semmering would be a boarding school with limited parental visits. Mothers do not know how to raise girls. Boys, well, boys are like rubber balls. You can drop them and you can hurl them against a wall. You can resent them intensely. They are such dim creatures they don't even have the wherewithal to be ruined. But girls, girls mishandled, are a menace. Miss Pym blinked rapidly. I take it you don't have any daughters yourself, Mary said, knowing for a fact that Miss Pym was childless. I have hundreds of daughters, Miss Pym said. I do a perfect job of raising them, and do you know the trick of it? Mary shook her head. I don't love a single one, she said. Miss Pym gazed directly at Mary. Mary gazed directly at Miss Pym. Miss Pym looked away. Thank you. That's Heidi Chulovitz reading from The Uses of Enchantment. Brutal. <laughs> That's, it's, 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 it's brutal and funny, and, you know, it's like there's so much going on there that, um, that I... Uh, I, I almost don't know how to how to what to say except to say yeah. wow. <laughs> you, I I will in fact Good. however quote from a, an interview that you yeah. gave I believe it was uh, at Powell's over in uh, oh, Portland. Yes. I mean you were talking about the Mineral Palace, which was your first okay. novel, yeah. and you said I love a book that's flat out brutal and depressing, but I don't know that I want to be known as a person who writes those books. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's actually been a real struggle for me, and and I feel as though. Um, I have been, I wrote a book, The Mineral Palace, which was kind of brutal and flat out depressing. And I, I feel like whenever someone says, oh, you know, I'm starting to read your book, The Mineral Palace, I, I, I have this huge sort of apology that I offered at the time. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And don't think I'm not that kind of a person. I'm really not. Um, you know, and I do love those books. And, and I guess I just, I, I also... I like to give myself the opportunity to be funny, even if darkly funny, and that book just was not funny at all. Um, and so with the second book, I felt as though I, I tried to way overcompensate for that, and I wrote something that was much more sort of um, darkly slapsticky. Um, and I had a great time writing it, but I, I then felt, okay, now I'm ready to kind of come back to center and try to find um, a middle ground where I can I can do both of these things, um, inhabit both of these uh books that I like. You know, I like books that are darkly funny and, and just flat out funny. I like to laugh when I read a book. Um, and, you know, and when you do laugh when you're reading a book, you realize how infrequently that happened. Uh, happens. I was recently um, reading again, uh, You and I by Nicholson Baker. You just laugh the whole way through it. It's just hilarious. And Lolita is hilarious. I mean, I was so... Um, uh, when I reread Lolita, I don't know. I mean, I feel like most people are told to read Lolita far too early. Far too early, yeah. And so when I first read it, I, you know, I think I was in high school, and I sort of thought, oh, you know, this is an interesting book. And really, literally, it was just maybe three years later I read it again, and 
it's hilarious, you know. I mean, how I missed it the first time around. I I don't I can't imagine. <laughs> I'm hoping that's what happens with me and Melville when I go back to read Melville. Oh yes, <laughs> what a riot! Yeah, <laughs> in high school it certainly wasn't. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it is true that you know the cetology chapter in particular in Moby Dick is hilarious. It is. I mean, in its own in its own way, it is rather hilarious. Yes. <laughs> It's just ripe for a Saturday Night Live skit, I always think. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make a note and send that off. Um, Well, one of the things that happened around the time that you began this this most recent book, The Uses of Enchantment, was that you became a mother. Mm, Of a daughter, no less. Of a daughter, no less. How complicated. (laughs) I know, it's so complicated. You mentioned in the first part of the show that... um, Part of sort of looking back to this particular time period was maybe that you had come to a place in your own life where you felt you could do it justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, does it, that have anything to do, do you think, with also becoming a mother, or is it really just a sort of separation of time? And I wonder. I don't think. I mean, in a way, I feel like becoming a mother is a real challenge to looking back. As I was saying to you, I, you know, I feel I feel really as though um, I have the most tenuous, almost dreamy grasp on what happened to me in my life prior to this, you know, this sort of sleep deprivation effect. Um, I mean, literally, I will have last night, I was having a conversation with somebody and he brought something up and it was something that I had known very well it was something I had experienced with him and I had completely forgotten about it. And it took, at first I thought, oh, I imagined that. Oh, no, I didn't imagine that. Oh, my gosh, that's what he's. Oh, right. We were together when that, ha- you know, so <laughs> it's a new spin on fiction and nonfiction. It's really true. I mean, well, I mean, once again, I, I find myself ever. I mean, I've always been amazed at memoirists, how they can remember all of that stuff or even even I mean, even if they're making it up, how they can even get into that headspace where they can remember anything even even just the most sort of foggy contours and and now I, I now I just I just think it's all got to be lies which is fine with me but <laughs> let's just call it what it is <laughs> all right well it is the top of the hour so we're going to have to take a short break you're Great. listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor my name is Ashley David my guest today Heidi Julevitz is the author of several books including the one we're discussing to get today the uses of enchantment we'll be right back Seventeen, their love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired. The Valentines I never knew, the Friday night charades of youth were spent on one more beautiful. At seventeen I learned the truth And those of us with ravaged faces Lacking in the social graces Desperately remained at home Inventing lovers on the phone Who called to say come dance with me we're back. You're back. We're yes. all back. It's uh, the Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Heidi Julevitz, and I are talking about uh, television. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do on our breaks. Shh. The unrecorded time. The unrecorded time. 
the real deal. Let's talk about The Believer. He was the founding mm. editor of The Believer. Yes, a founding editor. I had a, a couple others. Editor. Yes, I don't want to take full credit for it. Yes, and it, it, it continues um, and it thrives, although, um, you know, we're, we are uh, a fairly loosey-goosey sort of very um, pleasantly disorganized organization. And we just had a meeting on Friday, and it turns out actually we're going to have a budget. We never had a budget before. I don't even know. Like, In fact, so so detached was I from the finances of this magazine that we were having a discussion between three of us, and none of us knew how much a yearly subscription to the magazine cost. <laughs> things just sort of happen things just sort of happen and there's that's actually a really i don't know it's worked out really well for us but now we're going to try to get a little more um we're actually going to try to uh you know do some arithmetic (laughs) and find out how many copies we sell and you know anyways but it's it's um yeah it's just a it's a fantastic um Endeavor, I think, for for me as a fiction writer, um, I love writing fiction, but there's this other part of my, you know, I call it the math side of your brain that um, you can you can tap into when you're rewriting a book. But when you're writing a book, it doesn't really play a lot of a part. And I miss that. I miss, you know, ha- like sitting down and literally like pieces of writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, uh, to me, just become broken down when you're editing them into logic proofs. And I was really into logic proofs when I was younger. And um, and. And so that's just such an enjoyable um, activity for me to just sort of sit down and, and just sort of see like, OK, which which does this proof kind of pan out or are there a couple lines missing? Like, do you make a couple jumps there that you need to kind of more gradually sketch in? So that people are taken from one, you know, from the beginning to the end and feel like they've had this totally satisfying, um, very worked out experience, whether it's um uh, an argument you're making in an essay or an emotional arc that you're exploring in your fiction. Well, and there's even the way the believers laid out is very different from many magazines. There's a, mm-hmm. it has a logic that's kind of all its own. Yeah, and, yeah, it's still a linear magazine in the mm-hmm. sense you have a cover and the back cover. Then there's stuff, but it's, yes. but it is it's it has a very different feel to it than yeah than most of what's out there. Yeah, and um, you know we. Uh, we do still, um, you know, we continually try to mess around with it a little bit. And, and we did include um, now, you know, we sort of founded it on uh, as an antidote to the very, 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 very short review and the ever shortening review. Um, and uh, so we were only publishing essays. You know, our big thing was no less than 4,000 words <laughs> ever. <laughs> talk, 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 talk. Exactly. And, um, and then uh, then there was that big sort of blow up um, where one of the Times editors spoke to Book Slut and um, they said that they weren't going to really be reviewing as much fiction anymore. And so then we thought, okay, I guess we need to actually sort of, it seemed like there was a gap suddenly to fill and we needed to step in and uh, and do some short reviews. So now we actually do have one page, 650 word reviews. Those, those are extremely challenging. I mean, it's very interesting. It's so much easier to write and edit a 4,000 word essay than it is to edit a 650 word book review. What's the, uh, what, what, I mean, other than word count, is mm-hmm. it, is it um, a philosophical challenge in uh, that there's not enough space to explore what yeah. needs to be explored? Yeah, there really isn't the space to explore what needs to be explored. And, and it also almost feels like this box. It's so oppressive. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit, you know, I keep thinking like, okay, we have a page. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You think we have a page. 
we have a page to, you know, what's the goal of a book review? And we try to only review books that we are excited about and that we want to interest people in reading. And, um, and so if that's the goal, is the, is that goal best accomplished by writing essentially what is a plot summary that has space on either end for a, like a, a maybe a snappy lead and then a little bit of analysis? Um, or is that goal best accomplished in some other way? And we've actually been talking about, well, what if there were no words to this book review or, or to this? If, if this is sort of meant to be like, read this, this is a cool book. How else could you possibly accomplish that? And you know, Ads. Like, yeah, I mean, like, the, yeah. That sort of but I mean, you have to you have to sort of pique people's interest, and and um, it's interesting. I was talking to um, Ray McDaniel's last night, who's the who's the um, uh, works at is it Shaman or Shaman? Shaman John Drum. He, yes. he leads that series there, he, and there's yeah. also a poet. Who yes, been and on he's the a poet. Show. So Ray yeah. McDaniel, I've known him for many years. Anyways, he was just talking. We we had a long conversation about like how do you how do you bridge that gap between you have something and you want somebody else to read it? And he said that even for him as a bookseller, that's changed over time. You know, in terms of what people think they want and how you can appeal to people's sense of either curiosity or or fitting into their preconceived notion of what kind of a reader they are. Um, anyways, it's a real challenge. It's an interesting challenge. And so we're, that's our sort of big place of concentration right now is how to, how to, how to use that page. What's the best way to utilize a page so that it's not an ad, but it's maybe not also this, I don't know, this like 650 word book review that has this very sort of plotting kind of um, formula to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how I'm kind of wondering how you've invented not just the believer mm-hmm. <laughs> and your and your own works and sort of this rethinking about the the of the interview um the review but um you mentioned earlier in the in the show that um or maybe it was between one of the previous yes. that um someone said to you that you're a young writer and you've done all this stuff so mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. one day you'll just wake up and be an old writer but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go straight to social security yeah but right now um you're doing a bunch of stuff you've you, this is your third novel mm-hmm. um you've also found are one of the founding editors and continue to edit the believer you have a small child and you live um in a very remote part you're mm-hmm. you're one and a half hours from a, a sizable airport yes. and four hours drive from Boston. Yeah, um, you're way up there on the yeah. coast of Maine. Yeah. Um, how are you sort of making this formula to get all the th- kinds of things in that make this career that you are yeah. carving out? Um, well, to? you know, and we do live part time in New York. We're in both places, so I do feel like when we're in Maine, that's when we. Um, and it is so hard to get out of there. I mean, it is really, as you know, literally impossible to get out of there. I mean, it is easier to fly from New York to, um, you know, the Ukraine than it, it is. It, it definitely is much easier. Yeah. There's no transfer. You no, can, no. And if you'll stop. Yeah. So it's actually really wonderful when you go up there, you really commit to being there and you just are not ever going to go anywhere because, you know, it will take you days. <laughs> so, um, uh, but it is, it's, it's, um, it really has been, I mean, this is like the life that I dreamed of having. I mean, I do remember I only, I only had a, like a proper desk job for two years and I was living in San Francisco and I worked at Esprit, the fashion company for adolescent (laughs) girls. Gosh, it's all coming together now. Um, This is what I was hoping. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And, um, and I do remember thinking like when I was faced with that, you go in every day, you do what you do, you have your lunch break, you have your two weeks vacation. I just thought I'm, I'm going to shoot myself. Like I can't, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not 
able to do this. This isn't really, this doesn't work for me. And I mean, I actually was, I then started to wait tables and I far preferred that. There was just, you know, because you can just decide not to do it for a few months. If you save up your money and get a sub, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> else slept coffee today. Yeah, exactly, that. exactly. So, um, so in a way, this has really been um, the the more varied it is, um, the more interested I am. And I'm, I've started to do a lot of food writing for the Times too, which I adore. I bought a quarter of a cow this summer, and then spent the whole summer cooking it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just envisioning the cow in your freezer. <laughs> well, I mean, the great thing is that we had to buy, I mean, I sort of feel like we'd made it when we had the, we had reason to buy an extra freezer for the barn, you know? I, I feel like you've really made it in Maine when you have like, oh, it's in the freezer in the barn. Go out to the freezer in the barn. The in the barn. You How know? about the root cellar? You got one? <laughs> yeah, we don't quite have a, you know, the other thing that's really embarrassing is we don't have a compost heap. I mean, that, that really is shameful. I shouldn't even be admitting this on the air, but that will be happening next summer. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, no, the, the cooking part, the cow experiments cook the heart. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) How was it? It wasn't bad. You know, it was one of those, everyone was saying the sauce is good, you know, Wow. Well, there are a lot of really good cooks up there. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, I got to actually interview another, um, Elliot Coleman and Barbara Damrosh, who, for those who don't know, are um, are these uh, sort of gardening uh, farming gurus who actually grow food all year round in Maine. In Maine. Yes. Well, then Helen and Scott Nearing did the yes. homestead stuff yes. up there, the simple yes. life, and yeah. uh, the chases um, yep. are, have spent a bunch of time up mm-hmm. there cooking. So there's a long literary and food and Absolutely. all kinds of crazy, wonderful stuff happening yeah. up on the coast of Maine yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and all my interests sort of come together. It's like writing and food and... Yeah, and uh, and compost heaps and compost <laughs> heaps. So aside from the compost heap, mm-hmm. uh, what's next? What's next? A whole half a cow? Yeah, a whole half a cow. <laughs> um, I'm actually getting rolfed right now, which is you know a painful? subject of a whole not painful. Oh. This is my message to you people: rolfing is not painful. You know, it's not something that's it's not the torture massage administered by the you know '60s era hirsute sadist. Contrary to what you may have formerly believed. Well, this has been a show of just <laughs> breaking down all of our misconceptions. It's great. <laughs> and I'm so sad, but we're going to have to end it. It's been so great to talk to you. Let's yeah, go have some so good coffee now. All right, we're okay. out of here. Um, thanks so much to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a wonderful job, as always, and for coming in very early to pre-record this show. Thank you to my guest, Heidi Julevitz, author of The Uses of Enchantment, just out on stands. Go check it out. It's really fabulous. And um, my name is Ashley David. This is The Living Writer Show. You're tuned in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Thanks, and stay tuned.
Daily Sports Report. Now Conkel sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball swing, and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Eric Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on. Jeff Gunkel flashes out the sign. Setting up outside. 2-2 pitch swing and a miss. He struck him out and the ball game is over. Derek Feldkamp strikes out Jacob Howell on a 2-2 curveball. The Buckeyes are retired in the ninth. They leave two on. The final score here at Ray Fisher Stadium. The first ever night game played at the pitch. Michigan 11 at Ohio State 3. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the basement of the Student Activity Building. You are listening to the Daily Sports Report for November 15th. It's a Wednesday, if you didn't know that. It's been a while since I've been uh, doing one of these, but uh, we're going to go around. We've got uh, Rushi Vyas at my side, and behind the glass, Steve Schuster and Ted Pickus doing the engineering. Uh, pretty nonchalant day at sports yesterday. We're going to get say Who had Michigan? We have Ted has Michigan for us, so why don't you take it away? <laughs> 